I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. John Wick, chapters 2, 3 and 4. Welcome to Rome. Is this a formal event or a social affair? Social. How many buttons? Two. And what style? Tactical. Mr. Wick, do enjoy your party. How good to see you again so soon. You have no idea what's coming. You want a war? Or do you want to just give me a gun? Whoever comes, I'll kill them all. The man, the myth, the legend. John Wick. You're not very good at retiring. I'm working on it. Back in 2019, when Chapter 3 Parabellum emerged in theatres, we put out a show on the original praising its intense focus, firestorm of a central performance, otherworldly atmosphere, and industry-high combat sequences. At the time, I had been cheesed off with the decisions made in Chapter 2 that came in 2017, and Chapter 3 only cheesed my onions further, leading to an after-school club bringing back our guest from the original show, Victoria Luna B. Grieve, lamenting what was starting to make it feel less focused and drawn out beyond its welcome. I should note that we were the lone voices in all this. Everyone else hoovers up these movies for the slick, preposterous, assassin free-for-alls that they are. Then earlier this year, Chapter 4 emerged, pushing a three-hour running time that, again, only I seemed to think was too long. However, in my after-school club, I laid down plans for a new editing project. I would make John Wick Turbo bringing each of the three sequels into the same 101 minutes, that is 1 hour 41 of the original, to try to match the tempo, the pace, the tone, the world that was presented there. My remit was to see if I could trim away the things that bothered me and make this a quartet of movies that I want to revisit. For this, I would have to remove 21 minutes from chapter 2, 30 minutes from chapter 3, and a whopping 1 hour and 8 minutes from chapter 4. In this episode, I will be talking about the results of this project with full spoilers and new analysis, principally because Sharon saw John Wick chapter 4 for the first time this week in the form of my turbo cut and it swiftly jumped to the top of her ranked list of these four, and I agree with her. 
Of all the re-edits I've done, and this became even clearer when we watched the theatrical cut the next day, this may in fact be the most transformative, rivaling that of the Hobbit trilogy which I edited down to the two focused adventure movies that it could have been. Before I began, John Wick Chapter 4 was the third in the list. Now it's first, and we will talk about why with relish. Going into this, we must establish several new perspectives. Firstly, John Wick dies at the end of this quartet, ending the fourth chapter definitively. This is deeply satisfying for a number of thematic and real-world reasons. Secondly, studios love money. There have been many years of boasting regarding spin-offs and sequels. The ballerina is on the way, along with apparently this long-promised TV show all about the Continental Hotels. The temptation will be there to resurrect John Wick himself for prequels or even to undo the death that we see him begin to slip into at the close of the fourth film. I do not want this to happen. I do not want this to become the Fast and the Furious, and if it does happen, then the John Wick series will slip into alien territory for me, whereby the first two films are a canonical duet. In this case, it'll be the first four films. The rest, Elseworlds. What if stories? This territory is also occupied by the Before Sunrise and Before Sunset duology, and recently, Clerks of all things, one and two. For the longest time, the two Terminators were in this small group as well, until Dark Fate came along as a truly worthy third film to conclude an actual head-canonical trilogy, that being the operative term. This is not the same as the folks who deny that there are Matrix sequels. It's purely for our own purposes. We are not going to force anyone else to live in a skewed reality. Plus, it's more a case of just accepting that studios love money more than they do accepting that truly great stories end. Once you understand that, art can supersede commerce on a personal level. You may be wondering what I'm, what's Chad Stahelski supposed to do instead? Like, he's, all he's got is John Wick. I don't know, anything else. There's so many other movies out there that this team could make that I am so excited about the prospect of. I said back when we covered chapter four in the After School Club, Streets of Rage, currently being written as a script by the original creator of the John Wick characters, but no one's been cast yet. We don't know if Streets of Rage will ever see the light of day. And then I was playing the third game in this series the other day, and I realized that the John Wick team could spend 10 years making a really good Metal Gear Solid movie series. I know apparently one of them is in the works as well. I don't think it would be as good as this. Because <laughs> you really need someone who can handle the absurdity and the sadness of Metal Gear Solid. The third concept to wrap our heads around here, and it may not hold up to scrutiny as we go along, but it's one that Sharon came up with. John Wick is the personification of death himself. 
that this was a mantle he willingly took and gave up being human, and this sequence of four films is in service of him trying over and over again to take off the mantle while the high table representing the cruel, self-serving beneficiaries of an inhumane system abjectly refuse to let him be anything else than death. We will first begin with John Wick Chapter 2. Now, I went back after I'd finished my edit and I went to the pitch meeting for the original John Wick and they had pretty much nothing to say. I, I say they, it's Ryan twice. <laughs> and the, the whole movie is really well balanced. It's, it's splendid. There's nothing to pick away at. But John Wick Chapter 2, I noted with not an immeasurable amount of satisfaction that the things that pissed me off back in 2017 when it came out were noted here as being somewhat nonsensical or kind of breaking the immersion. To the point where I was like, yep, not in my cut. Nope, that's not in my version either. In a kind of a, oh, I've already dealt with these issues. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that uh, had the cuts of John Wick released in cinemas been John Wick Turbo, that they would have been better received. But I can't imagine them being received worse, if that makes sense. I feel like it would just be adulation either way. Like, they're all still great films. Mm. There's nothing I cut out of the Turbo versions that I was like, Oh God, I so wish I could keep that in there. Without at least acknowledging what gets lost by including it. So, for example, the things that I was just like, This, this seems a little... What? About Chapter 2 are the insinuation that more and more people are involved in this assassination agency. And by the end, it does reach that level of absurdity where John is running through Central Park that Winston has just shown him he can get everyone to just stop in their tracks. And it's like, everyone in the world is an assassin, didn't you know, John? Because either he knows or he doesn't know. And if he didn't know, that's a revelation to him. And if he does know, that's a show of power to illustrate that literally everyone in Manhattan is now gunning for him. Are you listening to me, John? Or are you looking at the assassin in the black suit? And then the assassin over there, who's a hobo. And then the assassin over there playing yeah. a violin. If, with all of that taken into account, if you permit the unfolding of the assassin underworld, which, in fact, let's just call it the underworld. If you let the unfolding of the underworld become so all-encompassing that there are hardly any people left in these movies who are not participating in it, then it really does start to feel like another iteration of The Matrix, and the presence of Lawrence Fishburne does nothing to dispel that mm. feeling. Hmm. So, what my turbo edit dialed back on are just a couple of extra shots of like more people than seems feasible checking their phones. It's, it's quite subtle. Like Sharon did not watch it and go, I really feel like there was a big chunk missing there. When John leaves Cassian on the train, he then has to ask for help from a hobo who also happens to be an uh, assassin and joins him up to the network and it goes to like Hobo Town. Leans forward into John Wick 3 where, you know, he, he's in an alley and a hobo's asking for money and then it's Jason Manzukis who's Derek in The Good Place and he's just like, TikTok, Mr. Wick, TikTok. And it's like, oh, come on, not everyone can be an assassin. And this extends to another major, major aspect. John staggering through a station, bleeding all over the white wall, 
than him and Cassian exchanging pot shots in the station with silenced pistols going pew, 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 and not one person noticing. Just carrying on. I remember saying this when I got back going, it just, it just blew my mind. Because the implication is that these are shadow people, that they're doing things so subtly that the regular people wouldn't be able to see. Or, or you know, you could be a John Wick apologist and, and say, the human eye only sees what it wants to see, but that's not yeah, true either. Because when someone again. starts firing off a gun in public, everyone screams everyone and starts running. I think it's an extension of what happens in one, where the cop comes round and sees what is obviously going on, and because he is in the know about about the underworld, mm. he's like, that's fine, you've got it under control, I'm going to walk away and close the door. However, there is a big difference between allowing somebody to close the door and continue dealing with what they are dealing with in their own home... You working again, John? ...and ignoring somebody who is gouting a positive all over a subway station. But again, just trim, 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 and they're just not there anymore. Those shots... They're just like it, John. Uh, it's it's actually just to help me along. That particular sequence is not so much confusingly shot, but it jumps back and forth in time. So it's not necessarily A followed by B followed by C followed by D. It's like A then E then a bit of B, and and eventually you're just like, well, John's trying to run to get a train. So all you have to do is just cut a few bits out, have Cassie and see him and chase him, but you don't have to have them literally exchanging shots in public places. Also. So, it contradicts itself by when they open fire on each other in front of the fountain, everyone screams and runs in every direction. So, clearly nobody in that particular square knows about the assassins. But then when they're inside the station, shooting at each other, nobody notices. So which is it, guys? There was no point in any of them in which I remember my brain going, hang on a minute, he's way more beat up than he ought to be for the amount of... Um, That's true. I kept the damage consistent. And I think it's it's more that it's sort of filled in, well, actually, in the real world, the few shots he's been subject to probably would cause this degree of damage. If it'd been covered in the hail that we witnessed before, he'd be dead. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the amount of injuries per movie that he receives would definitely kill someone. Absolutely. And this... And certainly put them out of to action. To my mind, is what boils up my theory that he is, in fact, death himself. That he cannot die. <laughs> he has Wolverine powers. Yes. The only explanation. So, you have a John Wick sequel for me? Yes, sir, I do. Remember, I watched this after I'd finished the edits of all three. But now we get this awesome action scene where John Wick murders a bunch of people at a party. That does sound like a cool setting for the murders. It is. The lighting is crazy. There's a bunch of people. Not in my edit. John runs from the rave and gets to the catacombs fairly quickly. Oh, it sounds like it's going to be difficult for him to slip away unnoticed. Actually, it's going to be super easy. Barely an inconvenience. Oh, really? Yeah, you know, it's a rave. Kind of confusing and difficult to keep track of people by default. And also, John's going to have to go up against that Cassian guy again. Oh, he is? You see, they're both at this fountain surrounded by a bunch of people, so as soon as the water turns on, they shoot at each other. Isn't that kind of reckless of John with all the innocent bystanders? Well, he's very good at hitting his target, so he knows what he's doing. Oh, so he hits Cassian? Oh, no, he misses. Oh, okay. So then we're gonna have this funny scene where they're shooting at each other with silencers, and everybody around them's completely oblivious. I mean, guns with silencers still make a decent amount of noise. No, they don't. People don't hear the bullet impacts and the concrete flying and what? 
whatnot? No, they don't. Well, okay then. Not in my version. They see each other, there is pursuit, but no shots are fired. So John finally stabs Cassian and then manages to escape some other assassins with the help of a homeless guy. Oh, that's nice of the homeless guy. What inspired him to help? Yeah, well, the thing about this guy is that he's an assassin too. Right, I should have guessed that. And he's part of a massive network of other homeless people assassins. Is anyone not an assassin? Uh... Uh, John Wick's dog, he's not an assassin. Oh, uh, what a good boy. For now. Okay. Not in my version, John goes from stabbing Cassian to walking up onto the rooftop to meet Lawrence Fishburne. So then what happens? Well, then John shoots Santino in the head at the Continental Hotel, which is not allowed in the world of assassins. Oh, yeah, why'd he do that? To set up the next movie. Well, that's thoughtful of him. So then Winston tells him that the bounty on his head has now doubled and been expanded globally. Uh-oh. And because he likes him, he's giving him an hour head start before he sends the message out. Wow, well, sounds pretty serious. It is. And then Winston shows off a little flash mob thing he organized. Everybody around them just stops. What? A little flash mob. Why would he... Why would he organize that? Well, you know, to, like, to show John how powerful the organization is. I mean, John knows that, doesn't he? He's part of the organization. Yeah, well... Still pretty cool. Why would that must have taken so much planning? Li yeah, yeah, probably. He had to gather them all there, brief them on when to surprise John, have people block off access to normal civilians walking by. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, he really wanted to send this message to John, though. You know that he already knew. That he already knew. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Not in my version. Winston makes the call. We cut to the ladies with the tattoos. Then we cut back to the park, and John is already walking away. We begin with Abram talking, that's Peter Stormare, talking to his consigliere. And I just, in all three cases, I was like, right, let's get into the film in media res much quicker than the actual final cut. I really liked cut. what you did there. Yeah. So they're talking about what happened in the last film. And I noticed that all the three sequels begin in a roundabout way talking about what happened in the last film. So I thought, right, since we're watching these in succession anyway, in the case of four, I managed to break it down into four little sentences that were being exchanged between Winston, the Marquis, and Sharon. And it was just like, if you just get those four sentences in a row over the opening logos, and it's slowly building up the tension and the music. You're like, you're starting your film with boom, oh, shit's happening now. And it's really effective. And everything that came before it is not required at all. I managed to pull 10 minutes out of the opening of four and just hit the ground running. Also notable, Peter Stormare here looks, everything about him suggests that he's going to end up killed by John with a fucking pencil. But he, very specifically, when John says, I want peace, says, okay. And he lives, which is like a lesson to every other person. All of these arrogant fucks from the high table who decide they're going to control the uncontrollable. Mm -hmm. Okay, put a pencil mark in a column marked respect for Peter Stormare's character. Yeah. And again, I will come back to that later. Okay. Uh, Aurelio John Leguizamo also survives the quartet. And I think, again, because he tries not to get too involved, he helps John where he can. And because at that stage, the high table aren't just going around punishing, hurting, and killing anyone who helps John Wick. So he's lucky he kind of... Uh, got ignored early on. After the opening where he gets his car back and batters it in the process, Santino comes to see him, but this is at the point where John is trying to get back to where he was at the beginning 
of the original John Wick before those idiots came along and killed his puppy. You noticed something this time when we rewatched the original John Wick about Daisy. Okay, so when John goes to get his first cup of coffee in one, he takes his mug off the counter, the one behind it, which presumably was Helen's, has a daisy on it. The card that she leaves him with the puppy also has a daisy on it, and so does the bracelet that he gave her that he keeps as his memento of her. <laughs> so fundamentally, although he, he does frame it differently, she rep- the puppy represents Helen. Hmm. Which is, obviously it does, it represents the grief, but I love the fact that these little details are there, that we did a whole school of movies and, and I'm not sure if we caught that detail. Hmm. I didn't, this was the first time I noticed the mug. Right. And specifically the fact that the mug is still there. She obviously hasn't passed very long ago, but he hasn't started putting her things away yet. Yeah. Santino is the first of... I remember Mackenzie said that uh, John Wick 3 Parabellum lacked a smug white dude for uh, who was trying to pull the strings and for John to eventually kill in the end. It does have one of those, but he gets his knob chomped in the middle by a dog that he pisses off. And he's not the one behind all this. The one behind all this is Santino who decides huh, he wants to kill his sister and take her place at the seat at the high table that controls New York, so he can become New York. And he's this arrogant Italian douchebag who clearly is more than happy murdering his sister. He says to John, I would do it myself, but I can't possibly do that to my sister. And I'm just thinking, you're doing that. This is the, John is the weapon. You are sending death to do this for you. Indeed. You are killing her. Yeah. And honestly... This is you some... washing your own hands and saying, it's not me, it's the assassin. Yeah, there are some fairly subtle facial expressions on Keanu Reeves' part that suggest his growing exasperation, for want of a better word, with the people who treat him as a, a weapon, but then seem to be able to feel a disconnect between them actually wielding the weapon. Yeah. And that's partly why, I think, he ends up going completely rogue because he sort of takes the position of, right, fine, if I'm going to be a weapon, I'm going to be in my own hands and I will decide who the contracts are on. Honestly, I'm racking my brains. I am trying to think of a single person who represents a seat at the high table who is honourable and decent. Gianna. Gianna, we come to now, the uh, lady that uh, John is sent to take out. The actress, Claudia Gerini, is absolutely hypnotic in this particular scene. You know, she's she looks in the mirror, she's just run herself a, a, a steaming bath in this catacomb uh, underneath a, a massive electro concert that's going on. And she sees John behind her. And the way she talks about him, you know, I, I knew you before and I did not expect it would be you coming for me. But we're going to have to talk about suicide here because this is a, a specific moment. She very deliberately decides to take herself out without John doing it and John allows that to happen. I'm not going to describe exactly what happens, but she takes that for herself saying, this is how I've lived. This is how I will go out, which 
especially considering the, the wordless intensity of the whole scene, just sort of passing between them. And you know, she disrobes looking at herself, looking at him, not in a, a seduction way, but in a kind of a, she is laying herself bare for her own scrutiny and being Italian, most likely to be heavily religious. So probably not expecting to go anywhere other than HE double hockey sticks. But it's almost like I didn't expect it was going to be this soon. And she has an astonishing amount of dignity. I'm going to play you Plastic Heart here from the end of the film by Cisandra Nostalgia, who is also the opera singer. Listen to the lyrics and take this as being from Gianna's point of view. one of the ones that I was able to incorporate into this death card theory, which comes from, if I, if I just give you an idea of, of what occurred to me in terms of the framing of it. So there's a lot of implied mythology throughout all four films, both in terms of names of characters and, and uh, locations that are obviously in, in the initial stages drawn from Greek mythology, uh, then it starts to weave in a lot of 
cultural mythology elements. So for example, in two, because it's it's set in and heavily focused on uh, an Italian Catholic family, there's a lot of religious, uh, uh, Christian Catholic religious iconography specifically. Um, and then it progresses through three where you have multiple different cultures who presumably bring all the these members of the high table from various different countries bring their own cultural influences into this conglomeration of uh, criminal godfathers for want of a better term and then uh, in four that expands still further and you, you have a lot of focus on uh, japanese culture and uh, the, it brings in the German family, we go back to the, the Rusca Roma. Now, what you could frame this as is rather than it being a specific mythological story, which one feels a little bit like, and was it Mikey, Mikey Newman, who uh, framed it as John pulling down Olympus. Not dissimilarly to Kratos. Absolutely. But it started to feel to me like this is about multiple mythologies all connecting together. Mm. Twelve is the number of the seats around the high table, and that's a very significant number in a lot of uh, um, polytheistic pantheons. The, the number of gods that have the highest seat is 12, and there's 12 disciples in the, the Christian mythology as well. It's a, a, an important number. But the one thing that every mythology and every uh, sort of cultural um, storytelling has in common is they all have a death. They have different ways of framing it and different ways of portraying it and different ways of interacting with it, but they all have a death. And if you look at the the sort of the upper level people that John ends up interacting with, let's ignore all the people below a certain level who will just call the oblivious. But if we look at the people who know who John is and what he is to the world, they divide quite neatly into the categories of uh, respect for death, where they acknowledge him, they recognize his role and they treat him carefully and as somebody that they can use as long as they follow the rules and in this one Peter Stormare I would say is a good example of that there are those who treat him with disrespect and scorn who basically think that death is their toy to play with and they can do whatever they like with him and he will never be able to touch them and that would be people like uh, Alfie Allen in the first one um, and uh, Santino, I would say, to an extent in this one. That the, the death is a, a tool for them to use, but they don't have to give any particular consideration to how they use it. Yeah, he forces John to uh, make good on a promise he had to make in leaving before, where it was described that he achieved the impossible but to get all the way out, he had to leave one final marker, one final favour for Santino, which he then drags him back in, and John keeps saying, choose someone else. John needed help to fulfil the task he was asked to do before he was allowed to leave, mm. and the only person who would help him was Ooh. Santino. Oh, it sounds like there's a whole movie in that. <laughs> Don't give them ideas. Um, <laughs> and then there is a third category, and that is the people who treat death as a friend, the people who know him that little bit more intimately, who will offer him act active help and support or get some kind of special measures from him because of past shared history. And Gianna is the strongest example of this within chapter two. Hmm. It's noteworthy that uh, every Bond film would have the person 
try to kill Bond first. Maybe until the later Craigs. But in this case, it's actually really unnerving watching her just accept it and decide this is not about you, this is about me. Yeah, there is very much a sense of she knew this was going to happen sooner or later. Yeah. And she very much wants to handle it on her own terms. See, Santino wants John to commit this awful uh, crime for him and then say, oh, John did this, I'm going to put a bounty on his head so that everyone will chase him down and uh, then hopefully there'll be no repercussions. See, this is the thing. No and repercussions, Sharon. <laughs> this is, this is the, the fundamental thing about the, the group of people who tend to be the younger entitled white dudes mm. who treat John with disrespect and scorn. Santino's motive here in let's get John to do this and then I can't possibly be blamed, he is assuming that everybody around him isn't gonna go, Dude, come on. It's John Wick. He wouldn't just do this. You for blew the sake up his fucking house, he told us. Yeah, but but <laughs> the point being, you can't say the murder of my sister was nothing to do with me, it was all John Wick. He doesn't act unless he's been set on a path by someone else. Or if we if he's gone after somebody that he hasn't been told to, we know he's got a good goddamn reason. But we understand that Santino's a, a pathetic little shit who yes. o only considers the rules to apply to other people as much yes. as it benefits him. Exactly, like I said. This is echoed by various high table representatives throughout the series. Yes. This second film is also concerned with John's mercy. It's a, it's a lower level theme, but it turns up uh, with the power of three. Number one is Cassian, uh, played by Common, who has knows John of old, and their fight is very personal. I, I only had to trim one bit out of their actual brawl when they fall down some steps, which takes a while, and it's like, oh, that seems painful. But I... The steps came in early then. <laughs> exactly. I was going, if we're doing a sequence, I am saving the best version of that sequence in that particular film and trying to remove or trim back any very similar sequences. So for example, if there's a protracted scene with dogs in three, we don't need so much dog action in four. Uh, so I somehow managed to make it that the hotel they wind up bursting in on in uh, at the end of that fight felt like it was on the same street that they began the fight with. It just, it was seamless. When he finally fights Cassian on the train, it ends with them both getting stabbed, but eventually Cassian gets stabbed through the aorta, and the knife remains in his chest, and John tells him flatly, if you pull it out, you'll bleed and you'll die. So stay. He is leaving Cassian alive on purpose as a professional courtesy. After this, in case that didn't sink in enough, the Bowery King, played by Lawrence motherfucking Fishburne, who is extremely eccentric, and I just had to dial back a little bit on a couple of things he, he said and the things he shouted, but just enough to keep the memorable ones. What's the number up to now, Earl? Seven million dollars. Damn! It's Christmas. We're going to Applebee's after this. The Bowery King points out that John took a chunk out of him many years beforehand and he could either staunch the flow of blood and live or he could try to take some form of revenge on John and die. It is the acceptance or respect of death. 
and he lives as well. And then there is a third character named Ares, played by Ruby Rose, who is fucking fantastic. They are mute and communicate with John with sign language that is very slow and deliberate and seems somewhat mocking and sarcastic. And John picks up on this tone and much like Cassian is chasing John because he clearly had strong feelings for the woman he was guarding, Gianna, who John has just killed. I also trimmed out the bits where John is shooting loads of people during a concert because if people are just sort of dancing or screaming and running, it just it feels very unprofessional. So John was able to sort of scoop by there. Like I said, barely an inconvenience. But I made sure that the fighting in the tunnels, which is out of the public view, was absolutely there. Also, you got to follow up on that bit where Peter Serafinowix is like, let me show you some meaty dishes, Mr. Wick. The gun equivalent of your autophile friend who knows all about the cars in the Fast and Furious movies, the one who knows all about the guns, loves this scene. Good afternoon, Mr. Wick. It's been a long time. I'd like it tasting. I know of your past fondness for the German varietals, but I can wholeheartedly endorse the new breed of Austrians. Glock 34 and 26. Recontoured grips, flared magwell for easier reloads, and I know you'll appreciate the custom porting. What's next? I need something robust, precise. Robust, precise. AR-15, 11.5 inch, compensated with an iron bonded bolt carrier. Trigiton AccuPoint with 1.6 magnification. Could you recommend anything for the end of the night? Something big, bold. May I suggest the Benelli M4? Custom bolt carrier release and charging handle. Textured grips should your hands get wet. An Italian classic. Dessert. Dessert. The finest cutlery, all freshly stoned. Well done. Could you do a rush order? Shall I have everything sent to your room? Yes. Thank you. Excellent. Mr. Wick. Do enjoy your party. I feel like if the Kingsman films had stopped trying to be so very funny all the time, dialed it back a little, and stopped yearning for an era of the Bond franchise where they weren't actually very good at all, they might have hit the mark closer to John Wick. But it's Mark Millar, what can you do? So as we established, Common really felt something for Gianna. However, Ares clearly has something going on with Santino and doesn't want John to kill him, but also seems to want to prove themselves for Santino. And so, rather unwisely takes John on in single combat at the end. It is a very fast fight. It reminds me of what I always said about Mystique taking on Wolverine would actually have been incredibly fast. Mm. And, uh, and would have ended with Mystique in a pile on the floor. Yeah. But... I always remembered this as uh, being the power of free and John lets 
uh, Ares live as well, but John pulls out the punching dagger that they brought and then starts rifling through their pockets for uh, a spare ammo while they're bleeding out and dying. And I tried to minimize this by cutting back to Santino over the point where John pulls out the uh, dagger. So it seems less like he's very clearly intentionally killing Ares because Ares is disrespectful. But I almost needn't have bothered because it's fairly clear from Ruby Rose's extremely excellent physical acting that they are bleeding out hard now. And at the end, John breaks the rules and he shoots Santino on continental grounds and it's like, oh, you've done it now, thus precipitating a new change. The first time around, it was his vengeance, that he was not dragged back into this. It was that he was trying to grieve, then that was interrupted. He had to clear the decks so that he could go back to his old life. Then in part two, his old life comes back and says, whoa, 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 you don't get to leave without doing us some favors first. So then this is John Wick doing what he used to do, but he's being used as a tool and abused in that regard by someone who doesn't follow the rules. John has to break the rules in order to kill this worm, which then excommunicates John. And I was very careful about the way I finished it so that it wouldn't end with the uh, everyone freezing in the park. It's uh, Winston simply tells him. We cut to the those ladies in their awesome outfits uh, doing the uh, typing down of John Wick, 20 million. There's questions that could be asked regarding the giving all of these assassins the incentive to kill John Wick with 20 million and that the, the bounty keeps going up and it's like... Honestly, loads of people were coming for him anyway. They can't kill him more for a higher bounty. It's It doesn't make any difference. 20 also, million, 40 million. Who's funding this reward? How are they going to identify the person who finally kills him? And what kind of bank transfer is this going to involve? It's, it's, it's hypothetical. Nice. It's symbolic. Kill death for us. We'll give you money. Yeah. So now... Well, frankly, then, the, the skyrocketing of the amount mm. is symbolic further because it's effectively saying no matter how much you give us we can't kill death willow theorized while we were watching all of these uh, with them for the first time on uh, definitely four definitely all together all of these and also my cuts that each one represents st one of the stages of grief so the first is depression which gets arrested and john has to go to anger, which is another one of those uh, stages, in order to get back to depression. The second is bargaining, because John gets told, you can go back, but you have to do this. And so there's a long protracted series of, maybe I can do this. And then this third one is fear. The third film is where everyone is after John. So in the first one, John was on the hunt. And the second one, he endeavors to be a good dog one last time and is betrayed. In this third one, John is now the hunted. Jonathan, what have you done? To dream the impossible dream. There's no escape for you. The high table wants your life. The right, the Tell me what you want. Passage. I can't help you. To reach the unreachable star. Do you expect him to make it out? 
A $14 million bounty on his head. And everyone in the city wants a piece of it. I say the odds are about even. Doc, five seconds. John Wick, excommunicado, in effect, in three, two, one. And away we go. going in like the old days. Just a conversation. Nothing's ever just a conversation with you, John. Now, this one wore me down in the cinema because the fight scenes go on for quite a while and there are so many of them. My original intention was to turn this into a TV show where each section is an episode so that it doesn't get exhausting, it becomes a TV show that has amazing fight scenes. But then I realized it would end, wind up being like three weeks worth of watching John Wick some very samey episodes and eventually I concluded I have to just trim this down a bit, lighten the load. They deserve to be one evening watches, you get them all done over four evenings. The third one is my least favourite of the three and I think by quite some way. It's the one which has the least dramatic energy at its core. It's it's fear over and over again. It's, it's John running for his life and trying to, still trying to bargain, but the high table aren't very good at bargaining. They're, they're very good at going, well, nope, you, you've, you've ruined it now. We're gonna send in some more guys to kill you. So John wearily has to kill more guys in different ways. The Doctor, Randall Duck Kim, who played the keymaker in The Matrix Reloaded. One of those men who's trying to abide by the rules, trying to help John, but he can't continue to help him fix the gash in his neck once the six o'clock bell rings and John is excommunicado, so John has to sew his own neck up. This is the one with the adjudicator, Asia Kate Dillon, who also somehow manages to get out of this one alive. I'd l if they are going to insist on doing shows about the Continental, for example, I would love to see the Adjudicator back. They are an amazing screen presence. Mm, agreed. Uh, in terms of representing the high table and being hoity-toity um, representation for the power mongers at the very top, it takes a certain personality to make it entertaining and engaging and not come off as pompous. Mm. I would say the Marquis comes off as detestable in this regard. Yes, absolutely. That would be the guy in the fourth one played by Bill Skarsgård. The adjudicator walks this very fine line between respect and disrespect for John. They want him taken out of the equation, but more because he's an awkwardness and an inconvenience rather than because they have no 
understanding of what his role within this world is. The High Table seem to want to make an example of him and illustrate that his defiance will not be accepted because they've got all these irons in the fire, all these assassins out there, they don't want any of them getting ideas. Mm. And it does come across... Because if they realise they can take the power for themselves, we're finished! Indeed. They don't need us. <laughs> they do come... It does come across a little bit as sort of this is the voice of the table saying... We are above you, John. We are above death. And John goes, nah, you know. <laughs> Actually, no. Yeah. Uh, the director is played by Angelica Houston, uh, runs the uh, ballet. He has to go to her for one of many, many tokens. This was something that was beginning to bug me when I, I uh, saw three. That it was, he, he he goes to a library to get a token to take to Angelica. She, uh, I cut out a bit where he shows tokens to some Russian guys, and then he shows her the token and says, "I want to have my ticket." torn and then it's like yes you may never come home again does she say you may never come home again something along those lines Bollocks. i, can't remember her I didn't cut words, that out then but, but that doesn't feel out of place to be honest with you because and this is the bit that right i wanted more of this as the director but i knew that what you'd cut out was not the more i wanted well, I very specifically cut out a ballerina who had been horribly injured while doing ballet practice, taking out one of her toenails that was just falling off. And I appreciate You're that. You're welcome, greatly. folks. Um, but um, but the the idea that John has connections and ties to all of the cultural houses, to all of the seats on the high table, that somehow that he's Russian he is, from the old country. He is like this family he was born to this family he was adopted by, this family he has friends in. Oh, there seems was... like there's several movies in that. <laughs> Indeed. But this um, sort of, this idea that he is connected to and owed by everybody within this world, that's a, a, a feeling that really brings the character out for me. And it's enhanced by things like uh, his... Um, linguistic abilities. The fact that, and, and uh, Ares in 2 is a great example of this as well. She starts speaking they. in, sorry. They start speaking in sign language, thinking that John can't understand them, but he is able to at least respond and definitely understand what they're trying to say to it. As well as the inflection of contempt. Yeah, exactly. And it it just, there's, there's a feeling of really being connected to so many different aspects of a world when somebody is able to understand and communicate with anyone within it, regardless of what language they're speaking. Hmm. Uh, I cut out a couple of scenes of reprisal from the high table for people who helped John, because effectively they were playing by the rules. I mean, he was excommunicado, but it feels like the high table break the rules whenever it's... Uh, convenient to them but poor director Angelica Houston gets stabbed through the hands by Mark Dacascus with his sword he's their bother boy like he they, they bring him and his ninjas around slicing up the Bowery King giving him seven 
cuts for the seven bullets he gives to John. I cut out the thing about him giving him a gun with only seven bullets because it's so friggin' arbitrary and John just has to go, well, I'm done with that gun, throw that away, pick up another gun. It never really feels like a die-hard, I'm running out of ammo situation because he's so incredibly efficient at killing guys. So I also didn't need the reprisal of the seven symbolic bullets means seven symbolic cuts. And also, do we really need to see uh, Mark Dacascus slashing up Lawrence Fishburne, though he is still clearly injured at the end and has been cast down, I just cut the little bit where he says seven cuts. Like, it's very clear that uh, he's pissed the table off by helping John. But we don't need to see the exact repercussions. This was a film that was heavy with cruel action, and I was just dialing a bit of that back, giving the, uh, the the middle some drama. Originally, I had intended to cut out the whole Casablanca sequence, just because he goes to the desert, uh, chats with Halle Berry, they do a dog thing, then he goes and finds the elder, then he cuts one of his fingers off, then he goes right back to where he started. And I was like, well, if I just remove the finger, then we just sort of carry on and just keep John in New York. I detailed this in our after-school club that I recorded just after having got back from the cinema, from seeing film four. Like, they're attacking you still anyway. You just went off to the desert and cut off your finger to waste time. You see what, you see what I mean about stuff I would cut? It would, however, mean that John was suddenly missing a finger. So I would need some B-roll, and I would probably have to buy myself a fake finger. You see where I'm going with this? Now, <laughs> I would, <laughs> you know what I'd do. Anyway, any one of the fights could deprive him of said You're digit. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Yeah, just, just, I need to uh, also add a dubbing a bit of, ooh, ooh, my, oh, my finger, that is bogus. Add that to one of the fight scenes. It would just slip in there totally now. <laughs> Uh, anyway, beginning of this film, John Wick does a horse race and then shoots that dude in the head in a kind of, oh, what was the point of any of this way? Does the horse have no name? Yes. But then I realised that some of the most important sections are in that Casablanca sequence. Also, it's in the Sahara, and I love the Sahara. It's one of the most picturesque places on Earth, but also one of the most inhospitable. So it deserves our awe and respect much like John himself. But also tying it in with uh, Sophia, played by Halle Berry, who has, who has separated herself from her daughter for her daughter's protection and is now leading a half-life where she feels the absence of this connection and is in pain as a result. And John coming around asking for her help and holding up the marker that says, you owe me a favor, uh, means that she and her daughter are now in danger, which is obviously reflected uh, by uh, Kane in the third sequel. And Halle Berry's performance is fantastic. She's just really angry. She's like lava, just this burning brand of like, you know, how dare you come in here? Yes, I'm gonna help you, but I fucking hate you for it. And they go to see uh, Jerome Flynn, who was Brom, the uh, sellsword in uh, Game of Thrones, but also Jerome of Robson and Jerome, who... Uh, uh, that will mean nothing to US listeners. If you're British <laughs> and 40-something, you'll know who Robson and Jerome were. You'll know who Jerome they are, were. yeah. 
They sung uh, a cover version of Unchained Melodies after, but were they on Tinker Toller Taylor Soldier? No, no, no. They were in a, a TV series called Soldier Soldier. Soldier Soldier. And they are effectively the adult Anton Deck. Americans won't know who Anton Deck no, are I either. Realize and that, and yes. you're lucky for that. But if I say PJ and Duncan, mm. they'll know even less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to cut some of this guy out because uh, he, he sort of goes on and on about the social contract and, you know, you give something, you gotta take something away. So eventually this guy tells John how to go meet this guy called the Elder who can help him stop being excommunicado. And how's he supposed to get to the Elder? He needs to go to the edge of the desert and then walk towards the brightest star until he passes out. Oh, that's just so extremely vague. And eventually this lady Sophia, who's been helping John out because of a marker, she drops him off at the edge of the desert. How are they supposed to know that's the right spot? Unclear, but it totally is. So then John walks until he passes out and wakes up with the Elder. Oh, the incredibly vague directions worked. They did. Uh, before they go, Barada decides he's going to have a dog, and if he's not going to have a dog, he's going to shoot a dog, which precipitates uh, a scene of doggo action that would be cute were it not to... F f like, it feels very specifically, because of the Casablanca setting, like a Call of Duty level. Like, so they're running around the place, pew, 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 and guys in turbans are screaming and falling and then getting grabbed by dogs, which I can't remember which Call of Duty you could have a dog and send them to go and do your stuff for you. Ghosts, apparently, and according to a whole bunch of ranked lists, one of the most forgettable. Ultimately, when John Wick starts to feel like watching someone else play a video game, I start to tune out. One of the reasons that the action sequences are so astonishing is because they put you right in there. And they've actually kind of, not ruined action sequences for us, but they've raised the bar on how one of these should be shot. So we saw the Transporter trilogy, uh, the, the first three with Jason Statham, over the past week in conjunction with John Wick. And it's kind of cute how they've got Corey Yuen, who is a, a martial arts legend from Hong Kong, coming in and doing these fantastic sequences. But the moment that Yuen steps back, most of the action in these is just like cut, 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 cut and they cannot settle on a single frame for more than a few seconds, which is especially galling when Jason Statham's fighting because it's so clear that even when Corey Ewan's choreographing it and they're still cutting really quickly, that he can definitely fight. It doesn't need to be these quick cuts. And a couple of weeks ago, you might recall me talking about the Big Mermaid on our episode. And you may, of course, remember that the lighting bothered the hell out of me. However, when it comes to digital filmmaking, John Wick, as a series, raised the bar on lighting scenes. There are so many dark scenes, club scenes, night scenes, out outdoors scenes, and they're all expertly lit by a director who has been a crew member for most of his working life and really, really knows how to do it properly. The cinematographer or DP for the first John Wick movie was Jonathan Saylor, who also lit Atomic Blonde, Deadpool 2, Fast and Furious Hobbs and Shaw, both of which were directed by David Leich, the uncredited co-director for the original John Wick. But John Wick's 2, 3 and 4 were photographed by Dan Lauston, a man who has worked with Del Toro on, among others, Mimic, Nightmare Alley, The Shape of Water, and Crimson Peak, the latter three of which have fantastic lighting in dark, dark stories. And in particular, I would suggest somebody who goes, if my team are doing the most amazing stunts you've ever seen, I want you to be able to see them. Yeah. 
I cut out one more bit when they get to the desert and Sophia hands John a bottle of a little bit of water, but then takes it back, drinks the water, holds it in her mouth, swills it around, and then spits it back into the bottle to give him an extra fuck you. I was just like, can we not? <laughs> I get it. She's angry at John. It's just, it's such a juvenile fuck you. She may as well give him a dead arm. I was particularly impressed by the fact, though, that he does hang on to the empty bottle, mm -hmm. which suggests that he's planning at some point to pee in it and use that to keep him going a bit further. Either that or he just doesn't litter. No, he's going to find some cactuses and drink cactus juice. Don't do that! It will give you nightmarish diarrhea. It's the quenchiest. It'll quench you. Right. Saeed Tagmawi uh, plays the Elder, and I always remember him as the torturer in Three Kings. Uh, he plays this uh, tragic soldier who is very, very angry at America and takes it out on Mark Wahlberg. And it's it's hard not to sympathise. Can say we haven't wanted to do that. It's hard not to sympathise with the torturer in that scene. Uh, but yeah, he's talking about how uh, um, his his wife was crushed by a giant block of concrete uh, because of the American insurgency. And were it anyone else playing the elder, I'd be like, shoot him, John, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. I'm still like that at this point, which is again why the sequence at the beginning of chapter four where John comes galloping in on a horse and then finds a different version of the Elder completely exposed to the desert with no tent up, no guards, no body armor, no weapons, just sitting out there in the boiling hot sun. I'm like, this is mental. There's no John Wick apologist in existence who can explain, how, like, aside from the high table are exposed now, why this is supposed to be an actual physical scene. I've got to be honest, I don't understand the purpose of the Elder. Because the Elder is supposed the to elder be... The Elder and the Mass one... Effect 3 Elder, because you couldn't save the uh, Elder in Mass Effect 2, so it's a different one. Indeed. The purpose of the Elder, or the point of the Elder in the story is that he sits above the table. The table are a collection yeah. of self-obsessed, self-important, I rule everything assholes. It feels like the point of having 12 of them is that they provide a counterbalance to each other to prevent any single one of them becoming too powerful. Why would they then have somebody sitting above them who appoints that person? How do they get there? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. The, the table, to my mind, needs to be the top. There is a certain amount of, uh, in every John Wick film, we know we said this before, but we're going to kind of rework it, mm -hmm. which reminds me of another series where not many people know this, but the table actually has someone sitting above the table called the Elder. Not many people know this, but the Elder is gone, and so is John's ring that he gives the Elder. It's fine. I took out the uh, opening sequence of uh, three because it almost feels more frustrating to see John cut his goddamn finger off here and give him the ring. It's effectively saying, I want to live and remember my wife. And for that, I will give you my wedding ring, which feels like a contradiction. And the amount of injure yourself to prove that you care about us, it stems from the Yakuza cutting off 
a little finger just to illustrate to their superiors that they are truly dedicated. But John gets branded, burned, and hanged for no reason at one point. The double down sandwich, it's a glop of cheese and bacon between two deep fried chicken breasts. And that's the whole goddamn thing. The sandwich hurts you to eat. You have to hurt yourself to eat it. You have to burn your fingers. That is like crazy Roman emperor shit. Hey, I really love your food, KFC. Prove it by burning yourself. Swear an oath of fealty. Do it before me. I get the finger thing. Mutilate yourself. I get the wedding ring finger. It's it is symbolic that he is severing. What is he a Jedi? He's no. It's it's symbolic that he's severing his uh, his heart connection with the world. He gives up the ring to show that he is truly dedicated, so that they will let him go and do the thing that he needs to do. But the, part of the point is, I I can give you the ring. She's in here. She's not in the ring. It, it That's true, they could have given him the uh, ring back in totemic fashion at the very end of 4, mm. so that he's got her back. But the whole point, the ring was symbolic of him living and remembering her, whereas at this point he doesn't need yeah. her. It's, it's, so being told the ring is gone is you can't just live and remember her yeah. anymore. There's also a moment where he goes to the library to get his rosary to show that he is a member of the... Uh, Roscaroma to trade it with the director for his passage to wherever it is he needs to be next and he takes everything out of that little compartment except for the photograph of him and Helen and like I said at this point it's because he doesn't need the tokens everything he's doing now is for her Is that also the book that he used to break that poor guy's head uh, he put it back on the shelf. I think it's. Oh no, it isn't. It is because when he puts it back on the shelf, it's got blood on it. Yes, there we go. He does use it to break that book. What if anyone else tries to take that book out? <laughs> anyway, I don't think it's a proper library. I think it's a. It's part of the underworld, and it's where people. We are spared down. the stern librarian going. There you go, Mister Wick. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but like oh, the, ca- the cab driver the does. Books. But like I said to you, it's funny because his boxes of stuff. <laughs> keep getting smaller. In the first one he uncovers this massive, almost safe-like case with all of these coins and weapons in it. In the second one, he finds a briefcase somewhere that's got some coins and some small weapons and then in this one, it's a book with a handful of coins and the rosary and before you know it, he's going to be down to an A-coin taped to the back of a radiator. It's his last hope and his his last refuge. So now John's got to get out of New York, so he goes to see this lady. What for? Well, sir, it turns out there's another symbolic doodad in this universe besides markers and coins. Oh, yeah, so he exchanges this doodad for a favor. That's kind of a lot of randomly valuable doodads, isn't it? Getting kind of repetitive in this lore. Oh, did I say doodad? I meant doohickey. Oh, a doohickey. Okay, that changes things up. Okay, great. So thanks to the doohickey, he gets safe passage to Morocco because he's got to go see this other lady and give her a doodad in exchange for a favor. But that, okay. And he needs this lady to bring him to a man because he needs to 
ask that man where to find another man, because he needs to ask that man a favor. So, like, what's the story of this movie? Oh, sir, I just told you, John's got to talk to some people and call in some favors to talk to other people and call in favors to talk to other people and call in favors. It's a little boring, isn't it? Just meetings with various people? Well, I mean, yeah, but you're forgetting the super well-choreographed murder sprees in between the meetings. Oh, okay, that's right. I do like watching the killings. This is also where the movie kind of folds back in on itself, because almost nothing that the table tell John feels consistent anymore because he's been excommunicated for shooting a member of the high table on continental grounds. He is reinstated, so no longer excommunicado, reinstated and sent back to New York to kill Winston on continental grounds, which should not be within the rules. Correct. Again. But also, Zero and his boys are trying to chase John, even though it's like, surely the high table should say, please tell everyone in New York to back the fuck off, John. He's still got to go and he's got to do a job for us and we don't want him to die. We want to make an example of him. And if he comes back and swears fealty to us, cuts off his ring finger, kills his figurative father, then we can say, this whole John Wick fit thing, just put it to bed. But the bounty's still friggin' on. Mm, that is very true. It does feel like a, a massive flex on the part of the table. Yeah. Like, John defied us. We are now going to force him to do things he doesn't want to do because we're going to kill show the guy him who helped him. That he is back under our control and to show the whole of the underworld that John Wick is back to doing things because we have commanded him to. And John makes it back to the Continental just barely in time before Zero kills him. So he's safe there? Well, yeah, because of that rule where business can't be conducted on hotel grounds. But he's excommunicado, so he's not allowed on hotel grounds. Well, now he is because he agreed to kill Winston, which is what he's here to do. Winston's on the hotel grounds, though. Yeah. So John Wick's not allowed to kill him. No. Okay. So anyway, John goes to see Winston, and after a brief conversation, he's like, yeah, okay, I'm not going to kill you. Why not? Changed his mind. Oh, okay. So the whole middle section of the movie and the finger cutting was kind of pointless? No, it wasn't. Filled up a whole bunch of runtime and split up the killing scenes quite nicely. That's a good point. After Winston gives John a, a, a choice between do it and become a lapdog for them and live or die like a man. Better a lapdog to a slip of a girl than a git. <laughs> and that's what John decides. He decides to be a git. No, um, <laughs> he goes, no, actually, I don't think I'll be killing Winston. At which point the adjudicator goes, right, well, then this hotel is deconsecrated and other people will come and kill Winston. And it's like, so it was consecrated until you just said that. So if John had shot him, he would be excommunicado again for doing that on continental you grounds. You can break the rules, Alex, if the high table has told you to break the rules and only them. Yeah, but we're also told over and over again that the high table only care about the rules. I know! If John had entered the Continental while it was still consecrated, and then the adjudicator had deconsecrated it before John reached Winston, that makes sense. But waiting until after he refused makes less sense. Anyway, then the SWAT dudes turn up in armor, and it's like when the fighting in Uncharted is no longer fun anymore because the guys are just like, you can keep hitting me 12 or 13 times in the head. I'm wearing special nah, armor. because I have special armor. You've got to hit me 30 times in the head. And then so you're like, like 30. And then there's another dude. And that's when they shotgun dudes are really close, but you're also being sniped, and there's also guys with AR-15s, and it just feels like... 
Well, how do you want me to fight at this point? I, I, I'm having to switch back and forth between them, and I can't guard myself from getting sniped and shotgunned at the same time. Manage your combat better. Three was a real bastard for this. Four was better. So I cut these sequences short. There was also a break point where he and Lance Reddick's Sharon, after loading up and going out there and, and, and shooting a bunch of guys, go back into the safe that Winston's been locked in and reload and get new shotguns and, and, and new ammo. And it just felt like half time. And it's supposed to be funny. Change ends. But it's at this point, the tension's beginning to drain away and you become more increasingly aware that you're just being fed your appetizer platters of violence before you get to the bigger fights later on. And you're like, I'm full. I'm so full. No more appetizers, please. And so I just trimmed it down a bit. 30 minutes went from uh, this one. And some people like it the best. Uh, our buddy Paul likes it, this one the best. Maybe because it kind of seems more aware of how daft it is. The fact that uh, Mark Dacascus is zero, is hunting John the whole time, but sort of ends up being a... This total fanboy by the end. He's like, notice me, senpai. We're the same, you and I. And John's like, no, not at all. (laughs) Then he fights four guys from the raid in a row. Mark Dacascus shoots one of the guys who was about to kill John... But all of them are about to kill John, were you? And then he says, right, only I may kill John Wick. And now to send you up against four guys from the Raid films. <laughs> Do you don't think that maybe John Wick might die there? Or, or also that he might be so badly injured it's not going to be a very fair fight between him and you. Doesn't matter. Fight the guys from the Raid. And there's a... I also cut a bit. I, I tried to trim down these sequences just to diminish the runtime, but they're really well edited and really well paced. And I noticed when there were more obvious cuts. You didn't notice, but I did. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to have to put the full weight of these fights back to just stretch them back out again. It didn't put that many extra minutes back on the clock. And uh, both films three and four have been extended to 45 minutes and 48 minutes respectively after having watched them, just to add a little bit more in where I felt I'd cut too hard. But I did cut off the last few seconds of the fight with the guys from the, the two guys from the raid at the end, uh, the Mad Dog and the guy with the curvy blades. Their real names are Yayan Ruhian and Sesep Arif Rahman. Because after John bashes them through the glass floor, they both go, Oh, cough, then fall over dead. And it really looks like either they're agreeing to play dead or that they both die and their eyes turn into crosses and they get like... <laughs> it's it's just too silly. And th- there's some silliness in this film, but I, I do feel like that sometimes they step on the carefully cultivated drama. This film series proves that it can be more than just silly. Same advice. Saying hello. You think your wife can hear you? No. Then why bother? Maybe I'm wrong. You're going to die. Maybe not. Goodbye to you, my trusted friend. A new day is dawning. New ideas, new rules. No management. We've known each other since we were nine Who is this? The Marquis de Gramont. Challenge him to single combat. 
win or lose, it's a way out. I don't sit at the table. Your family does. Please pray for me. I was the black sheep of the family. Man has to look his best when it's time to get married. Or buried. I'm going to need a gun. Goodbye, my friend. It's hard to die. If you win, the table will honor its word. We'll have your freedom. Under the old laws, only one can survive. Failure to meet at sunrise will result in execution. Last words, Winston? Just have fun out there. <laughs> I want you to find your peace. But a good death only comes after a good life. You and I left a good life behind a long time ago, my friend. And now we come to chapter four. And the reason that this one felt very different in the Turbo Cut was that I made a hard edit. And I'm not talking about like lessening a fight. I cut out act two. There's a part at the end of the Osaka sequence where John goes back to New York and talks to Winston. And Winston says, you need to challenge the Marquis to a, a duel. Like, the high table will have to respect that. And John says, I'm not on the high table. And, and Winston says, your family is. And in my version, John just sort of nods and it cuts to Winston walking through the museum up to approach the Marquis and try to get him to fight John. In the theatrical cut, there is a big chunk in the middle of this, which you saw uh, eventually afterwards, where John goes to Russia to see his family. They start to hang him after shooting him with a shotgun, then charge him with going off and uh, finding Kila Haken, who killed Uncle Piotr. And so he then has to go and have a poker game with Scott Adkins, who is a detestable, gross bastard. He's in Berlin, not Russia. Berlin, did the, I say Russia? The house of the Ruskaroma is in Berlin. Oh, for goodness sake. Okay, so yeah, they get. he goes to the, a club called Himmel et Hol, which is heaven and hell. And then if you've seen four, obviously you'll remember the, the lengthy sequence here where uh, Kila Harkin keeps giggling to himself. Uh, uh, and he's this just mass of affectations. He reminded me this time of Goldmember. Mm. And like, you know, he's, he's got... I mean, the teeth don't hurt. His gross teeth and the inhaler. And it's, it's Scott Adkins in a fat suit. And then it ends up being a poker game. You know, John ends up leaping forwards and trying to slash him with a card and then runs out after him and there's a whole pumping disco sequence there. And then John goes back to the family and gets his arm burned to get the special family crest on there. So the way I did it was splice together that museum scene that happens afterwards and make the principle of Winston setting this up 
as revenge, which he says very plainly to John, and just sort of move forwards logically to that bit. Willow asked, what does that mean when uh, John held up his arm with the uh, family crest? And I said, it's his family crest. And Willow accepted it and we moved on. That was like 40 minutes worth of busy work that not only didn't need to be in this film, this film is markedly better without it. Mm, yeah, I, I am inclined to agree. It, it gums up the works with layers of complications that aren't necessary and having like my my assumption when I saw your your pared down version was oh, okay he's gone back to the 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 Ruscaroma his his family that was originally led by Angelica Houston but presumably is now led by somebody else because we know she came to a sticky end even though we didn't really see it in in your version of 3 um and He's he's. Oh, she didn't get to a sticky end. She just had her hands stabbed. Okay. She's still alive. Oh, she just got well. Then holy hands. Okay, so my assumption was then that the letter that Winston turns up at the museum with to give to the Marquis mm. to say here is John's challenge from his family yeah. had come from her. That I just assumed that that was how it played out. The only hint was when I saw the credits at the end that I was like. Natalie Tenya. <laughs> Where was she? She's I don't really good. Seeing her like, in it. For as overblown as as the great Scott Adkins is, mm. uh, Natalia Tenya was like, "This is a character who could come back for those Continental TV shows if you absolutely must." Indeed. There are two major characters hunting John in this. We have Kane, played by Donnie Yen, who has a daughter, and much like uh, Halle Berry's character, Sophia, he wants to be with this girl. And he feels like he's, well, he's retired a long time ago, but he still seems estranged from her. He, we never see him talking to her. Mm. Like, he represents a danger. So he's sort of watching her from afar as she yeah. plays the violin. Ultimately, yes, he has technically got out, but he is in that weird twilight world mm. of they still monitor where you are, they still follow you. If you get too close to her, they will work out that there is a connection between the two of you yeah. and she will be in danger. Uh, and he links uh, hard with Koji Shimuza, uh, played by Hiroyuki Sanada, who uh, you may folks may have seen recently playing Scorpion in the rubbish Mortal Kombat reboot. And he was so much better than that material that he had to work with. And it, notably, like it starts off and people are like, huh, this seems pretty good. And then it becomes the film that it actually is. And you're like, huh. And then he comes back at the end and, and people sort of left going, well not left because a lot of it people saw it at home when they were desperate for anything and may potentially have afforded it a bit more leeway than it deserved or earned. That is sneaky actually. If you give people a really good opening and a pretty good closing, those are the bits they'll remember. The fact that they dozed off through the middle, mm -hmm. they might let slide. Yeah, well clearly they did. People, I liked it. Um, however, uh, Hiroyuki Sonada was also in... Uh, Sunshine, one of our absolute favourite films as Kaneda. Mm -hmm. uh, he, I believe he also turned up briefly in Endgame as somebody Hawkeye killed. Yeah, he's fantastic always. But he also has a daughter called Akira and uh, she's the concierge at the Osaka Continental. We get to see her fight as well. You said that uh, she's played by uh, Rina Sawayama and she's never been in a film she's, before. This is this was her first uh, film. She's done acting on the stage. She uh, wrote and starred in um, her own play and but she's mostly known for being a singer. Yeah. 
And in the end, Kane, the blind swordsman, fights with Koji, even though he doesn't want to do this. He has been dragged back like John was in two and forced, you know, blackmailed into this because, you know, what's going to happen to your daughter if you don't? Pretty much begs the Japanese samurai to stop fighting, and he doesn't, and eventually he dies. His daughter almost attacks Kane, and he says, don't, live. And that's a really important moment because he's saying, please, your father would not stop. I didn't want to kill him. He wanted you to live. Please don't attack me. Please don't pursue a vendetta. There's only really one way that can end for you. Hmm. Which makes it feel galling when at the end she's doing precisely that in a stinger scene. And it's like, oh, for goodness sake, please don't. It's, it, it's such a good ending for it to then end on this sort of reprisal. It's like they, this fourth film feels very much like Kill Bill, both one and two. It's got the Western feel and the samurai movie feel. It's got a lot of pauses and a lot of thinking and comprehending and reckoning with death itself as an eventuality. It's very mature the way I've cut it and it has a weight which even the first one doesn't quite achieve, which is why I really love what this became. And Donnie Yen, Kane, in this is absolutely integral to that because he's a man who has something to die for, something to kill for, and something to live for. Whereas John has none of these things. So it becomes a case of John has to give at the end after asking for help so many times throughout this series. He has to give himself up in order to reunite this man with his daughter. Everything about this is about fathers worrying about their daughters and about a man who never got to really live, stepping back selflessly to allow those connections. Mm. It's also about fathers recognizing that their daughters are going to be the ones that take this world forward in their place yeah. and wanting to be supportive of that and teach them right to be able to look after themselves in direct contrast with the son of Vigo from the first one who was raised badly, has no respect for the world he lives in, is an entitled little monster and ends up having to be sacrificed on the table of being an absolute ass. Oh, so the high table. Leaving Vigo with no, no future. His family is now without a legacy to, to pass forward because he brought his son up wrong. Yeah. The second man who is hunting John is called only the Tracker. And he has a dog and says very specifically that he she's an emo well, he's her emotional support animal, so which is, is nice. And obviously this relates to John with his particular like the, this whole thing began with the death of a dog. But the tracker represents someone who finds people for the high table, marks them, and then either takes the bounty himself or other people move in. It's not made clear. And whenever he talks to John, he's like, oh, you and me are just getting started. Me and you, John. And, you know, the bounty's high, but I need it to be higher. I like money. And compared with all these other themes, I'm like, what, sir, are you bringing to this film? And it pisses me off that I have to take a person of colour out of a film. That's what I had to do for this one. I had to remove the tracker. 
because all he does is get in the way. I compared him to a guy who shows up at a concert and looks at the concert that has 10,000 people in there already and goes, yeah, I found you. I imagine you found me online. I'm busy, I'm really busy right now, yeah. Me and you, you and me, concert. I'm thinking about buying a ticket. If you want to, yeah, go for it. Well, you know, it's a big, big deal, this. Me buying a ticket, me thinking about coming to see this musical act, because this is... I'm fascinated, and the concert is so fucking busy. I don't understand why this character is here, aside from, do you like the tracker? Because unlike Donnie Yen, he's quite young. He's played by uh, Shamir Anderson, who does have presence. Mm, yeah. Almost too much presence, because he sort of sits in between Donnie Yen and the dudes who run at John Wick with knives every day. And John seems to not want to kill him and spares him over and over again. And he very specifically snipes people to keep John alive so that he can ostensibly pick him off at some point when the bounty is high enough. So everyone in Paris is running at John and failing. And eventually uh, the tracker is saying to the Marquis, you know what, 50 bajillion dollars. And the Marquis is like, fine. For 50 bajillion dollars, I will. Sir, that's not a number. <laughs> and I was like, you're a traveling hobo. Like, also, these are golden handcuffs, which is what you said. Even if you had the 50 bajillion dollars you demand, you're living a really good lifestyle, but you can still get picked up by the high table and sent to do God knows what. Mm. Like, we've already seen that you can't just have a life all it means is that you'll be able to, you know, live in slightly more luxury than your friend down the road who only got 20 million from his last kill. Also, it's worth considering how much of a luxury lifestyle can you actually accumulate if you are continuously on the move? Yeah. To have stuff, which is what money gets you, you have to have somewhere to put the stuff. Everything about the tracker suggests he shouldn't care about money. He's just wandering the world and like if he was just more mysterious and wasn't into money and was just like, I'm trying to work out whether it's right to kill you or not. Mm. And John's like, okay, well when you figure it out, let me know. Until then, I have got to move. Yeah. I, he, it feels like he'd have been better if his character was developed um, to make it more like he's the potential to be the next John. Well, yes. But he doesn't act like... He's weird with John in a way that John is never weird with other people. Damn, Johnny. This is quite the mess you've made. I don't know you, but I know you. You a tracker? How much? Not enough. But it's getting there. I need you to take better care of yourself, Johnny. Because we're in this together now. Yeah, I guess we are. Anyway, I have to go. You can track the trail of corpses if you like. Yeah, it sure was lucky that old Spider-Man showed up and saved the day. Sir? Does she know? What? 
Does my daughter know that you're Spider-Man? Sir, I don't know what you're talking about, but- You're Spider-Man. I'm, I'm not Spider-Man. I see how it is, Pete. Playing it close to the chest. I'm not Spider-Man. Look, I'm not your enemy, Peter. What are you talking about? You know, when I was a boy, my father told me, never underestimate the power of an honest man. Your daughter is just sitting outside right now. I guess it's like they say, Spider-Man, Spider-Man washes down the water spout. I've never heard anybody say that. Despite the fact that he's a hobo and charming, he seems to think very highly of himself. So when John eventually winds up saving his dog in a, well, obviously he was going to save the dog. He's John Wick. This is what we know about him. He's surprised and completely bowled over. And it's like the first thing he said to John was, I don't know you, but I know you, John. What? Like the first thing you should know about John Wick is... Car dog. <laughs> so, yeah, um... I left him in one specific bit when, uh, at the end of the first fight between John and Kane, sniper rifle bullets come out of nowhere to separate them. Otherwise, we have no end to that fight. And I made sure that it's clear that the tracker is still there, right. that these meetings did not not happen. And that at the very end, I left him walking up the steps just off in one shot to illustrate that he's there to witness John, because that's kind of what he's there for. Yeah. He's the, the young guy with the dock, as you said, but it's a very clumsy comparison. Because of how you framed the, the few scenes that you left him in, and I think there's maybe a couple more places where you could reinstate his presence if not his direct involvement, to make this a little clearer, because obviously there is no exposition in this. It was not intended in the original script. It is a quirk of the framing that you've given it. Mm. The, who I thought he was, bearing in mind that I've, I saw the Turbo edition before I saw the full-length version, who I assumed he was, was somebody that the table had hired to track John keep them appraised of his whereabouts and his doings, but also, if it looked like he's in too much trouble that he might not get out of, you give him some remote support because they can't stand the marquee either and they want the little fucker taking out. That would make sense. It would also make sense if the tracker revealed, you ever wonder how everyone always knows where you are, John? It was me. Not, I'm not, not the author of your pain. I have an important, but quite low-paid job, but I do it because I'm really good at it. Mm. And I've been studying you, and I kind of want to know a few things. Just if by the fourth one he's ha kind of getting a profound realization and we see him emerge from the shadows, it it makes sense because people are like, you know, the, the, the ladies are moving markers around saying where Absolutely. John is. And it that... makes sense if he's the one who's been calling yeah. it in. But that is not what's really being made clear in this film. Mm. When he goes to the Osaka Continental, he has sketches of John in his book, and he's got like 20 crossed out, 22 question mark crossed out, 45, he wants 45 large. But he's not calling it in and saying John's at the Osaka. He's there to bag John himself, maybe, and just sort of keep tabs on him. Mm. So when the guys from the high table turn out, he's surprised. He hasn't called this in. Mm. Yeah, he starts directly reporting on John's location, to the marquee yeah. and is told, well, I'm not giving you money just for finding him, you take him out. Oh, you say he is in Paris. Well, that is a huge surprise for me. I just played fucking Magic the Gathering with him. 
How did we get by without a tracker such as yourself, I wonder? We have a duel at dawn and you are not tracking shit. I know where he is because so many people keep dying around the Arc de Triomphe. We've already talked about this way too much, but it illustrates this and the midsection where you've got to kill Scott Adkins in a fat suit. You take these two big elements out, the film becomes much more focused, streamlined, much more of a, a thinky drama with an explosive, protracted third act that definitely matches the original John Wick, almost matches The Matrix in terms of here's some action at the beginning and then we're going to hold it back for a while and then loads in the third act. Mm, absolutely. And it really allows the film to focus on scenes that appear in this that, like I said, they, they evolve this kind of mythological enhancement to the story that's going on. In particular, there's this idea of legacy and who is going to take this understanding forward. And if you have uh, a disrespect and a scorn for the death of our, our underworld, the, the person who is responsible for us all passing over, if you try to pretend like that can't affect you and you have full control over it, here's what happens. You end up trashing your own history, your own tradition and this comes through in things like the the continentals all seem to have these museum rooms and the the osaka continentals museum room gets utterly destroyed in the fight early on in the film and it and and then it, you kind of cut to this whole uh, the marquee hanging out in a museum that's full of of uh, revolutionary paintings that's clearly who he's aspiring to be is some revolutionary hero which sits somewhat at odds with the religious mythology that the table sets them up for because the french revolution in quite sizable part was deliberately trying to push over the church so again this sort of brings him in as this weirdly tall upstart who... You noted at the beginning that he's making is. a very sugary tea. I love And a, a very sweet cake, but like he's having to extend his arms all the way down to tables that are a bit too short for him. Absolutely. They haven't given him a table that fits him. And he's rich. He could afford a table to his height. And it's just very, very obvious, even when he's not standing next to anybody, that he is a gangly adolescent who is out of his element in this role. It's fascinating that he kind of hit the big time playing Pennywise and now is playing these awkward little creeps. Pennywise is an awkward little creep. Yeah, but that was so. the first thing that occurred to me. Why would you put Pennywise in charge of anything? <laughs> <laughs> You fools! Whatever goes wrong here, it's all your fault! <laughs> yeah. One other notable big change which I made, which is the house that they go into near the end, prior to the steps, but after the Arc du Triomphe, uh, is just... It's very video gamey again. We've seen John Wick killing a bunch of dudes in a house before. This is the point where I said in the after school club, it cuts to above the actual set and the camera floats overhead following John. And I said, it's just like a twin stick shooter watching someone play Hotline Miami with absolutely pixel perfect response times, but you're not gripped by it because you've seen it so much before. I swapped in the section from the German dance club where John is pursuing Killer Harkin, but I recut it to make it seem like Killer and his 
burgundy-coated, axe-wielding goons were just another obstacle in a disco that John barged into. And it was so seamless, you didn't notice that that did not belong there at all. I did not. No. It, it felt really consistent. And you pointed out afterwards, I didn't even notice that his shirt was the wrong colour. Yeah, his shirt goes black for that sequence only. I had to cut a lot of uh, Keeler Harkin looking scared because if it's a great big guy being chased by John Wick and he's scared and like <laughs> with his uh, inhaler, then it's going to change the dynamic of the scene. But John gets really hurt and there's some amazingly lit, brutal fights there. And also I couldn't take Scott Adkins doing high kicks in a fat suit out of the film entirely. And it's far more visually engaging and otherworldly than the house sequence. I had to cut it short without the big fall onto the stairs neck first and then the removal of his teeth. Thank God. The entire audience went, ooh, at yeah. that point oh. when I saw it in the cinema. Yeah. It's just, it's really, whoa, crack. Also, the bit where John gets kicked all the way down the 120 stairs. To begin with, everyone went, oh no, and then it just kept rolling and rolling and rolling for 17 goddamn seconds. It got a laugh. Like, they were laughing in a kind of a, they needed a bit of release at that point. Understood. After two and however many hours it had been by that point, I can completely understand that. But as I said to you, that bit did not ring as humorous to me, it felt really heartbreaking because it's, it's Sisyphean. It's you just did all of this, now you've... And it's because it, it's not even the, this is an obstacle that you can't get past. I didn't feel like John's not going to get past these stairs, but I did feel like, you poor sod, you have to do that all again. Now on far less energy. Yeah. The uh, end sequence with the duel, I didn't cut anything out of apart from occasional shots back to the tracker, which again I had to edit around, which, which worked pretty seamlessly because Tyler Bates' score is very Ennio Morricone at this stage and is sort of flowing from one moment to another. And it's magnificently shot and it plays itself out with the music telling us this is real, this is actually happening, it's the last slow gasps of life for death. Which is, again, why I really don't want more of this specific... I don't want this John Wick brought back to life. Mm, yeah. There's some real subtle moments in the duel as well. Uh, I noticed when we watched the full version, when Winston brings John his third bullet and says... Just kill Just him. kill him. He's not talking about Kane. Yeah. I know. Uh, Ian McShane probably does his best here. Even... He didn't know Lance Reddick was about to die, and it. I've seen people who are irritated that Lance Reddick gets taken out so early. This is a wound that the Marquis inflicts upon us, the audience, with this knowledge. Like, we cared about Sharon because he was always very dignified, very respectful, but he also kept a certain amount of pride for himself. He was excellently, expertly played. He is one of the people who very definitely falls into the category of death as a friend, mm. and he embraces his own death in a similar way. Yes. And Ian McShane, again, he's been throughout all of these films, this, this kind of boiling 
pot of, of not rage. Like he never gets really fucking angry the way you would expect Al Swearingen to. But he's always there to kind of slyly tip the odds in John's favor. Even when he shoots him in the chest at the end of three and knocks him over a building in a way that would definitely kill anyone aside from John Wick. But yeah, uh, Ian McShane, this is uh, a role he will most definitely be remembered for because uh, these movies are held in high regard and he performs fantastically in all of them, maintaining a character consistency, even when the script goes, and then they deconsecrate, and then they consecrate, and then they decommission, and then they commission, and then he is excommunicado, and then he is incommunicado. Okay, I'm not sure where it lies right now, but I will say these lines as though I believe in them. <laughs> Donnie Yen also plays a fantastic role in this. It's like, if this was his last role ever, it would be a amazing one to go out on. He has had a stellar career. We are definitely going to be talking about Ip Man at some stage. There's lovely physical touches in the way he performs, and he's got a combination of reminding us that he's blind by, by making sure he never looks at things, but always checks them with his stick or touches them, but he also moves extremely fast and deftly uh, through the world, as though he is... He knows he's not going to bump into things because his reflexes are just too cat-like. But he's working with a disability in a way that feels believable. I love it when he starts putting little uh, doorbells on the wall so that when people walk past, they'll tell him that there are people there. And then he moves one down because it's like, yeah, but they're probably going to be hunkered down at this point. But he's also got a... <sighs> about the way he has to do all of this stuff. Like, he really hasn't been doing it for a while. He didn't want to be doing it. And there's a very significant moment when the character of Chidi, which is the name of the second for the Marquis, the, the mean guy who's horrible to dogs, shoots a uh, Japanese lady in the head in the Osaka in a kind of... Like, she's half his size. It's very clear he didn't have to kill her, but he absolutely just caps her... Uh, just without a second thought. And then within minutes of this, Donnie Yen's cane gets a young Yakuza to the point where he is just about to be shot and then decides against it and knocks the young lad out with his stick just to illustrate the difference between mercy and just a complete disregard for human life. I think maybe the best line, the best delivery, the best timing in the entire series so far is uh, when the Marquis creeps over to him after he, by the way, has accepted John's uh, challenge, but then nominated Donnie Yen, which means that if Donnie Yen dies, his second Chidi, who by this point is also dead, has to be buried with him, but under no circumstances will the Marquis actually have to die. He is a cheat. Yes, he is. But he says, remember your daughter in a, in a kind of just sort of making sure that, uh, that you do this fight properly and, and kill John Wick. Remember your daughter. Fuck off. Just that I've been remembering my daughter this entire time. You disgust me on every possible level, but I have to do this. As Killer says, one who believes he can serve his way out. He is telling himself that there will be an end to this. But effectively, it's blackmail. They will keep blackmailing you 
and always hold this one thing over you Absolutely. while they still have need of you. Yeah, and Sophia recognised that, and that's why she has had no knowledge of her daughter for years. And in fact, the, the favour that she owes to John mm. is because John is the one who took her daughter and put her somewhere that was both safe and where Sophia would never know mm. how, where to find her. In her words, you have to kill that part of yourself. Yeah. That's sad. I mean, this whole thing is very sad. The... Uh, when John starts thinking about Helen at the very end, it feels like they've, they've gone back to her a few times throughout the series, but it feels like she's closer now than she's ever been. And this is when I realized the film ends on Eye for an Eye by uh, Rina Sawayama, so that's um, Akira. And it's this really sort of grinding, pumping, yeah, we just saw a great action film. song but I didn't want to end on that tone so I chose a Kaleida song instead hearkening all the way back to think in the original John Wick I went I went through about five days of racking my brains for the best possible song that could go here because it couldn't just be any old needle drop it couldn't be a Johnny Cash song it couldn't be foreigner it, it couldn't be thin Lizzie it couldn't be Queen it, it, it John Wick's world this mythology doesn't fit with our music. What we hear is angelic voices and demonic screaming. The pumping, thumping trance music that doesn't really fit with the dad rock that goes into uh, great soundtrack choices or disco it's, that puts you in specific 70s moments or soul or funk or anything yeah. like that. The, the whole series, as we've discussed, has this very strong Blade Runner flavour to it, but, but a, um, a modern reinterpretation of that world and it's, the, it's that neon noir, everything is ungrounded, everything feels very unreal and yet the consequences are all very real. But the sensation of being in that world is always slightly floaty and slightly not really, you're, you're not there. It's, like I said, it's, it's mythological. Yeah, and we're going to end on that. I adore the tribute to Lynn Thigpen in The Warriors with the Paris Assassin Radio followed by Nowhere to Run by Lola Colette, and then a French version of Painted Black by Manon Hollander. All right now, for all you bubbers out there in the City of Lights, for all you street people with a ear for the action. To all my loyal listeners who know the beat of the street, tonight is your chance to make some beautiful music. I've been asked to relay a special request from a secret admirer. It seems there's a thorn in our little slice of paradise. A wicked man from the Big Apple is making a beeline to our secret heart. We're putting the call out to deliver your hardest beat to this man in black. If you want the prize, you must finish before sunrise. This golden oldie 
And I do mean golden. Hit goes out to you, Mr. Wick. And remember, there is nowhere to run. out there, especially to the ones who give 15 obols for the boatman every month. This one is going out to you. Thank you too. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, when did I become Christopher Lambert, Alex Brewington, <laughs> Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, The Wicked Man, can you say a few? Yeah, Brian Novak. Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dachla, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Dan Hepner, Daniel Salguero. Guess who I want to play Snake in these Metal Gear Solid films, helmed by Chad Stahelski. We'd also like to thank Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, now I sound like Tommy Wiseau. Hi, Greg Downing. How's your sex life? Jamis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clausen, Joe Gluck, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Pallmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, a brand new entry at number 15, Sean Doran, Toby Skills Jungius, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Tom Painter, Timu Hellas Hayo and Sarah Montgomery. Something else also occurred to me. Every time you see dogs in John Wick, they're always on his side. They're never attacking him. This occurred to me while playing Call of Duty Survival Mode on Modern Warfare 3. I had to go up against so many dogs and I feel like John Wick would be powerless, so send an army of 20 Alsatians after him, he'd be toast. But then Sharon told me all he'd do was say, sit. And then suddenly all 20 Alsatians are sitting in a row and you got Peter Stormare going, you gave an army of attack dogs to John fucking Wick. And then they've got all sorts of good boys on their hands. I also like the inclusion of Clancy Brown's character, The Harbinger, in this because he's not of the high table, but he represents them much like the adjudicator. Yeah. And he does not like the way Mar the Marquis does business. So by the end, when John has delivered consequences in a self-sacrificing... Well, this is an actual sacrifice. You don't sacrifice <laughs> someone else. What John effectively gets the approval of is justice itself. Mm, yeah. He gets told, you have appeased what you needed to and balance is restored. 
taking an awful lot of corruption out along with you as you did, leaving the world in a better place than when you started and indeed when you tried to leave off. Yeah, and the, the Harbinger kind of represents that, that stable tradition that the table seems to have, have originally been, but with the introduction of these younger, more Young wild elements, um, is is starting to lose that. Oh yeah, it's been an unstable table for a while. It has, and Clancy Brown is like, yep, this all seems to be in order. And I love the way, and I, I know again, I noticed this when we watched the full version. People come in and they clean up the, the box with the guns in it and they take away all the, the accoutrements of the, the jewel and they leave the marquee lying there on the steps. They do not pick up and remove that body. Mm. Try explaining that to the Paris police in the morning. You're working again, John? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, I'll end this by saying, of course we're going to see this series continued. I just hope that they maintain an understanding of that this was a moment that they really earned. And Keanu Reeves definitely deserves a rest. Even though I would want him to play, Naked Snake and then Solid Snake. By the way, if you haven't played Snake Eater, wanting someone to play Naked Snake sounds like something else entirely. But even though I would want him to, only if he has the energy and passion for that role. Otherwise, let him rest. So we'll end on Kaleida with Picture You, the song that I chose to actually end it with. a uh, What sounded like a voice from beyond, but one that was familiar. So I have been Alex Shaw. And I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. Thanks.